Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to our program. On the line with us is Professor Adam Tooze. This is our Conversations with Great Minds Hour, something we occasionally do on this program. Adam Tooze is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University, the author of seven books, including Crash, How a Decade of Financial Crisis Changed the World. His latest book, which we'll be discussing today, is shut down, how, the COVID, how COVID shook the world's economy. And uh, Dr. Tooze, welcome to the program. I, an extraordinary book that you've written here. You start out by talking about how the world is vastly unprepared or underprepared for this crisis that hit us. What is the foundation of this? Well, it's good to be here on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's kind of puzzling, actually, because you can't simply say that um, we didn't know that this, a crisis like this could happen. Um, scientists have been warning us for decades that it could. And you couldn't even say that we didn't have, you know, teams of experts and staff who were charged around the world, not just in the United States, but in Europe, in Asia as well, in the developing world, with anticipating and preparing us for a shock like this. But when it actually arrived, it proved, well, virtually no one succeeded in implementing those pre-laid plans. And we sort of stumbled into this chaotic, scrambled, improvised response in which then predictably perhaps a whole variety of things went wrong. And this is where one could situate, say, the endless post-mortems in the United States about the CDC and testing and so on. So I think when we look back on this, with hindsight, of course, this sense of puzzlement, because on the one hand, we really did know this could happen. We really did have people whose job it was to prepare us. And yet, even in the face of the reality of you know this, this looming crisis in China that was, was wreaking havoc there, we ended up sort of shrugging and going, oh, well, you know, Chinese disease, Chinese place, Wuhan, big city, but maybe, but a long way away, not really our problem. Maybe it's their Chernobyl. And we sort of got on with ordinary business, I mean, even though we should have just gone to a you know, red alert, basically, and in, in JFK and L.A. and London. Everyone should have immediately gone to panic stations and said, yeah. right, okay, we need to start talking about ending global air travel now. Yeah, I totally get it. My recollection is that after SARS and then MERS, which are both coronaviruses, but far more deadly than COVID, you know, SARS was killing, as I recall, about half of the people who got it, and MERS around a third, that the Obama administration put together a comprehensive they literally called it the, the pandemic playbook, um, a comprehensive plan to deal with a pandemic. 
that was literally either ignored or, or, or done away with, essentially, that and the office that put it together by the Trump administration. Am I remembering that correctly? That, that is true. Um, I think, you know, credit where credit is due, the, the, the discussions about this go back to the 1990s when there was the, you know, I think it was a sarin attack in the Tokyo subway. And, you know, in the kind of era of Clinton, this was identified, along with things like climate change, as one of the, after the Cold War, you know, we had to refocus on new types of threats. And then after 9-11, there was a huge surge in funding for pandemic preparedness, bioterrorism preparedness under the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. So this was a bipartisan thing, absolutely. And Congress, bipartisan votes of Congress have allocated money to these kind of preparations. There is then absolutely a paper trail of you know, various types of absurdity on the part of the Trump administration most of the time. But they were at least running the war games. It wasn't as though anyone, in, you know, there were folks in the Trump administration fully cognizant of what needed to be done here. And and we said, if you pan out, you know, you see the same phenomenon everywhere else. Like, you know, you see the same phenomenon in Germany, the same phenomenon in Europe, um, more, more generally in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom and the U.S. together came very top of the list of sort of global pandemic preparedness indices because they've got great, you know, life scientists, biotech capacities, and they were both governments that were closely involved in the global war on terror. And both of those states failed. So though in a sense we all failed in our own way, you know, it's, it's famously each family is unhappy and it's in, unhappy in its own way, that in a sense pertains to this as well. It is true that you know, South Korea is practically the only advanced economy that, that really got the reaction right. And the significant thing about them is in 2015, they had a really nasty run in with MERS mm -hmm. and, and failed and, and then drew lessons from that. And I do think, you know, living in New York, as I do, I think it's pretty clear that if there was a, a, a new phase, a new shock, that then we would not hesitate to talk seriously about JFK. And indeed, at this moment, of course, it's still very difficult for people from Europe to fly into that airport. Right. So... I think we're in a different space now altogether. Right. So we've we've sort of learned our lessons, uh, although, you know, sort of, tell, yeah. tell that to anybody who lives in a state with a, re, you know, with a Republican governor. Well, precisely. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all, I mean, going into the fall, in a, you know, in a hands on face to face, you know, educational environment like the one I'm in with, you know, crowded groups of graduate students in spaces which aren't designed and aren't properly ventilated. It doesn't take much to even upset an institution like my university, which is wholly dedicated to pandemic preparedness. And, you know, we have a 100 percent vaccination requirement. But it's not obvious that we can contain something as infectious as Delta. Right. In your book, you talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic was quite literally the single most disruptive event in the history of modern capitalism. Um, I'm assuming you mean like, you know, post Republican Great Depression of the 1920s uh, and 30s. Uh, tell us about that. No, I mean, when you say that, it sounds as though it must be hyperbole. You know, any kind of statement like that just has about it the sort of ring of exaggeration. But it's rather the reverse, kind of just go back and count. Is there any period in which we have seen a 20% fall, which is our best guess as to what to happen to global GDP? If we, if we've we ever before seen a 20% fall in global output in a matter of weeks, as we did in the first three months, four months of 2020? And the answer is just point blank, no, never, not, not even close. 
we bounce back, and that too has been, you know, to do with unprecedented actions that were taken to get us back. Mm-hmm. But the shock itself is like nothing we've ever seen. I mean, 3.3 billion people, that's basically 90% of the global workforce, which isn't frankly a number I even knew what the global workforce was. Mm-hmm. But looking it up, that's what it turns out to be. Um, were under one or other type of furlough or, you know, job regulation, social distancing regime. Practically all young people around the planet were out of normal um, education. That's 1.6 to 1.8 billion uh, young people. Again, not a number I was familiar with because we don't normally have to count the whole world. Right? That's not actually something that's a relevant metric. Crises happen in particular countries and maybe in a big region like Europe. They don't happen simultaneously to the entire planet. And that's the other thing that makes this so extraordinary, is that the speed, the scale, and the fact that it literally affected everyone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, what, what lesson should we learn from this about the, I mean, is, is this a, a lesson about the fragility of capitalism, particularly the, the, the kind of neoliberal laissez-faire version that has increasingly been practiced around the, the developed world since, the, since basically the 70, 78 to 1982 period? Or is this more, rather than tinkering with the structure of capitalism itself, we should be doing just normal preparedness stuff like we were talking about a few moments ago? I mean, I think if we focus on the pandemic, you could say, starting from there, that we need to look hard about health checks and global air travel. I mean, we need to have a more effective, you know, taking everyone's temperature as they travel would seem to be an absolutely evident thing, or having speed tests during flu season so we can actually track uh, and uh, and check and, and trace everyone. You know, at big global airports like Heathrow, that kind of system operates reasonably smoothly now. Um, those kind of things are clearly necessary. I think when it comes to the balance between efficiency and resilience, a key issue that some people raise within the hospital systems and other infrastructural systems, we would want to tilt towards resilience against efficiency. Not that we can abandon efficiency as a criterion, but as resources are limited. And so if you waste them on one thing, they're not available for some other very important purpose. But we do need to balance resilience and uh, against efficiency. And we probably need standing capacities of types that we just haven't had before. But if you scope out even further than that, you have to say, I think, that certain risks are coming our way, whatever we do, and our system is fragile. Yeah, extraordinary. We're talking with uh, Dr. Adam, Professor Adam Tews, uh, the author of Crashed, his new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. He is the uh, Catherine Shelby Column Davis Professor of History at Columbia University and the author of seven books. It's Conversations with Great Minds with Professor Adam Tooze. Stick around. <music> Professor Tooze, in your book, you talk about how the scale of the response to COVID was one of the major, uh, uh, you know, whoa, <laughs> you know, kind of wow things um, yeah, that, yeah, that, that we've never seen before. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, the, the first element is simply the decision, collective decision, and it, it doesn't just come from on top, but the collective decision to shut down. I call the book shut down because I think the lockdown language is contentious. 
Um, you know, before 2020, if you look on Amazon to books entitled Lockdown, it's like exploitation novels about prison life and stuff like that. Um, you know, lockdowns were associated with collective punishment in, in incarceration. Right. Um, and you can understand why that language came out during the crisis. It was a bunch of people around the world, you know, experienced the shutdown that way. And in some countries, that's a not unreasonable description of what happened. South Africa and India, you have really coercively enforced lockdowns. Even in Paris, you know, you have plenty of students and old friends who who lived there, you, you couldn't go out on the street without a police certificate. So that's one element of this, which was unprecedented. And that's what's causing the real economic shock. And then what we saw was a financial market reaction that was just terrifying. Um, not this time in the private credit system like 2008, but in the US Treasury market that was malfunctioning. And that matters because that's the bedrock of the global financial system. And to counter that, the Fed intervened, you know, if you saw 2008, you know, it was big. The final line of the book is we ain't seen nothing yet. And that about essentially applies to this Fed experience. I mean, they, the guys and gals running the Fed, and it was, in fact, a key bunch of, of women at the Fed who were doing this, um, were buying treasuries at the pace of a million dollars a second in late March and early, and early April. They bought over 70, in fact, over $80 billion on some days. They bought 5% of the treasury market in a matter of weeks. This is a market that is $21 trillion deep. It's really the big ocean of the global financial system, and it wasn't working. And then so they were doing this up, to sustain the market, to prevent the prices yeah. from going nuts. Pardon the yeah, interruption. Because the, because the financial system, a key part of it is the, is the treasury system. It's, it's in a sense the least exciting bit, but it's the piggy bank, right? So if you've got a big, complex portfolio, you put your high-risk, low-liquidity stuff illiquid stuff at one end of your portfolio. And at the other end, you have basically cash or something that's close to being cash. And treasuries are close to cash under normal circumstance because they pay you a little bit of interest, not much, but some. They're bomb-proof because basically, barring some shenanigans with the debt ceiling, you know, they are going to be paid. Right. And crucially, the market is so huge that the, 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 the prices are not sensitive even the largest seller. And from the point of view of strategy, that's crucial because you can just optimize in relation to whatever the price is. You don't have to haggle. You don't have to worry about you moving the market in one way or the other. And, and that means you can use them to anchor a portfolio. And in the second and third week of March, that stopped functioning. So A, the prices were moving the wrong direction. People were selling equities and treasuries, which is not what we've seen in recent decades, and throws a bunch of algorithms off. And the second thing that was happening is you simply couldn't sell big packets without haggling, without it taking hours or even days, which is basically tantamount to saying, I can't sell this stuff. And, and that throws your entire calculation off. And, and this is what the Fed really had to, to counteract. Yeah, remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. This is, the whole story is absolutely remarkable. The book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy by Dr. Adam Tooze author of Crashed, winner of the Lionel Gelber Prize, and uh, professor of history at Columbia University. We're talking with Professor Adam Tooze of Columbia University, the author of seven books, his most recent shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And uh, Professor Tooze, we were just talking about the scale of the response and how unprecedented it was. Um, but that that didn't just happen in a vacuum and COVID just didn't happen in a vacuum in terms of the the political and economic response we already had uh, numerous destabilizing elements uh, some in the united states some around the world this rise of authoritarianism 
And I th it, frankly, in my opinion, uh, I would I would say that the Trump administration was America's uh, you know four-year experiment with semi-authoritarianism. But but you know, in in other countries, it's, <laughs> it's uh, look at what's going on today in Brazil as as they continue to melt down, and of course you know the uh, other countries. Tell us about this. What what are these other destabilizing elements, and what role does the international rise of uh, authoritarianism play in this? Well, it certainly was already disturbing the world before 2020. I mean, if you look at like analysis by uh, Federal Reserve economists, they're literally compiling statistical indicators of uncertainty in the markets and how this is depressing investment. This is why this was feeding through into the economists' analysis. They wanted to know why manufacturing investment globally was trending down. And they arrive at the conclusion that this has to do with the destabilization of global trade. And um, we know when they try and trace the original source of that back, one of the time series that correlates rather well with this is the flow of tweets from, from the White House, from, from President Trump. So it is um, you know, undoubtedly part of the picture of the pre-pandemic period. Um, and it is by no means confined to the U.S., as you say. We have seen nationalist, xenophobic, authoritarian regimes emerging, well, long established in Russia, for instance, but taking a new and dramatic turn in, in Turkey, uh, in, in Brazil as well. Uh, before the crisis hit, those of us of a sort of liberal centrist disposition were terrified that this would, in fact, lead during a crisis to... A disaster in that the nationalism would get, as it were, the better of the impulse to manage the crisis. And we saw that, of course, in American domestic politics. And we saw that in the public health response, which was a shambles in many of these countries. Um, but we didn't see it in the management of the big picture global dollar system, Federal Reserve intervention. So for me, the takeaway from this moment is that, yes, we have that vector of political destabilization coming from nationalist right-wing populism. But at that moment, as it were, a chunk of the American government machine centered on the Treasury and the Fed and their supporters, broadly speaking, and it's the Democrats in Congress twice over now in 2020 and in 2008, it stabilized this crisis-fighting measure in political terms. But they, as it were, separate out and, and it's this disaggregation that's so striking. You see something similar in Brazil as well, where there's this chaos around Bolsonaro at the national level, but it's a huge country. And, you know, at the provincial, at the level of the states that make up Brazil, you're seeing people desperately trying to do their best to actually manage the crisis. And, and this disaggregation is something that's really striking. And of course, the terrifying thing is we've seen it went all the way up the, you know, the military command chain now with the revelations about Millie from Woodward's book. And I think that confirms the, the most nightmarish fears, really, about the disarticulation of power in the U.S. Are, are we sort of saw the financial side of? I'm, I'm, I'm forgive, forgive the interruption. Are we sort of seeing a micro version of that macro on a state by state basis here in the United States where the the yeah. red states are are just, you know, wiped out. Idaho basically just said, OK, that's it. You know, if you're sick, don't come to the hospital, uh, whereas the blue states seem to be doing quite well. I think that's 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 fair to say that that what's what's being exposed here is, you know, that the America America is truly a federal entity. So it's both division of powers at the national level, and and by that we don't really just mean you know courts, Congress, and the executive branch. We also mean the military command chain, the Fed. You know, there's at least five or six different divisions there. But then, as you say, you know, 
state by state, but in a sense sectional, and that there's the northeast, there's the coasts, if you like, on either side, and there are the red states, which follow a rather different logic. It's worth saying, of course, that this has been a patchwork epidemic, and in the first phase, it was the democratic states that failed. I mean, it was where I am, it was New York that failed to get a grip on this crisis, and the mortality there was disastrous in New Jersey and Connecticut. So it's been a patchwork. It's fascinating. It's, absolutely, it's an absolutely fascinating um, moment in history, one that uh, many, I'm sure, you know, in the future we'll be looking back on. We're talking with Dr. Adam Tooze, Professor Adam Tooze. Shutdown is his book, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. We've got a six-minute break here. I'll have a book report for you. We'll be, we'll be right back. To the Tom Hartman program. Back with Professor Adam Tooze in just a little more than five minutes. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Our book today is Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance by Ian Golden and Chris Kutarna. Uh, the paperback edition is now out. This is from chapter one, titled To Flounder or Flourish. If Michelangelo were reborn right now amidst all the turmoil that marks this shocking moment we're in, would he flounder or flourish again? Every year, millions of people file into the Sistine Chapel to stare up and wonder at Michelangelo Bunarati's creation of Adam. Millions more pay homage to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Through five centuries, we have carefully preserved such Renaissance masterpieces and cherished them as objects of beauty and inspiration. But they also challenge us. The artists who crafted these feats of genius 500 years ago did not inhabit some magical age of universal beauty, but rather a tumultuous moment marked by historic milestones and discoveries, yes, but also wrenching upheaval. Their world was tangling together in a way that it had never done before, thanks to Gutenberg's recent invention of the printing press, 1450s, Columbus's discovery of the New World, 1492, and Vasco de Gama's discovery of a sea route to Asia's riches, 1497. And humanity's fortunes were changing in some ways radically. The Black Death had tapered off, Europe's population was recovering, and public health, wealth, and education were all rising. 
Genius flourished under these conditions, as evidenced by artistic achievements, especially from the 1490s to the 1520s. By Copernicus's revolutionary theories of a sun-centered cosmos, 1510. And by similar advances in a wide range of fields, from biology to engineering to navigation to medicine. Basic common sense truths that had stood unquestioned for centuries, even millennia, were eroding away. The earth did not stand still. The sun did not revolve around it. The known world wasn't even half of the whole. The human heart wasn't the soul. It was a pump. In mere decades, printing boosted the production of books from hundreds to millions per year. And these weird facts and new ideas traveled farther and faster than had ever been possible. But risk flourished, too. Terrifying new diseases spread like wildfire on both sides of the now-connected Atlantic. The Ottoman Turks, backed by the new weapon of gunpowder, conquered the eastern Mediterranean for Islam in a stunning series of land and naval victories that cast a threatening gloom over all of Europe. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, leveraged Gutenberg's press to broadcast a new narrative that society's hallowed institutions served only to fatten their own hierarchies. It spread faster than compliant elites could fathom. Europe broke into Protestant and Catholic halves, War and refugee crises ignited continent-wide. Meanwhile, the populist priest Girolamo Savonarola, 1452-1498, ignited a real fire, the bonfire of the vanities in Florence, the very heart of Renaissance Europe. With apocalyptic sermons, Savonarola stoked people's worst reactions to rapid change. He promised Florentines a return to past glories if only they would join him in his campaign to burn away weak elites and their corrupt agendas. Enough did so that he was able to lord over the Republic as a de facto king until four years later, his political enemies literally crucified him. Such was the age in which on 8 September 1504 in Florence, Italy, Michelangelo unveiled his statue of David in the city's main square. Standing over five meters tall, weighing in at over six tons of fine Carrara marble, David was an instant monument to the city's wealth and to that sculptor's skill. David and Goliath was a familiar Old Testament story about a brave young warrior who, in true underdog fashion, improbably defeated a giant foe in a single combat. But with hammer and chisel, Michelangelo fixed into stone a monument no one had seen before. It must have caused some confusion for those present at the unveiling. David's face and neck were tense. His brow was furrowed and his eyes focused determinedly upon some distant point. He stood not triumphant atop the corpse of his enemy, the standard portrayal, but ready with the implacable resolve of one who knows his next step, but not its outcome. And then they saw the artist's meaning clearly. Michelangelo carved David in that fateful moment between decision and action, between realizing what he must do and summoning the courage to do it. They knew that moment. They were in it. We are in it too. The present age is a contest between the good and bad consequences of global entanglement and human development, between forces of inclusion and exclusion, between flourishing genius and flourishing risks. Whether we each flourish or flounder, and whether the 21st century goes down in the history books as one of humanity's best or worst, depends on what we all do to promote the possibilities and dampen the dangers that this contest brings. The stakes could not be higher. We each have the perilous fortune to have been born into an historic moment, a decisive moment, when events and choices in our own lifetime will dictate the circumstances of many, many lifetimes to come. 
Yes, it is the conceit of each generation to think so, but this time it's true. The long-term facts speak more loudly than our egos ever could. Age of Discovery. Fascinating book. And welcome back. We are speaking with Professor Adam Tooze, the Catherine and Shelby Quillam Davis Professor of History at Columbia University, the author of seven books, including his most recent shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And uh, Professor Tooze, welcome back. Thank you for uh, staying with us. You have a chapter. In fact, the uh, title of the, of the chapter is uh, Wuhan, Not Chernobyl. How is it that mistaking Wuhan for Chernobyl, for thinking that, you know, this... Well, explain to us. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it was a kind of uh, unfortunate coincidence that the HBO series of Chernobyl had kind of reawakened memories of that disaster in the 1980s that helped to destabilize and delegitimize the Soviet regime. And so when COVID struck in China, a bunch of folks, uh, senior journalists in the West, but also Chinese netizens who were all over the kind of... Uh, TV, you know, cinema uh, rating sites started drawing parallels between the catastrophe that was unfolding in China, the failure of the regime to contain the disease, and um, and that incident, which in the end many people think helped to bring down the Soviet Union. And what was revealed at that moment, in my mind, is sort of wishful thinking, right? That that folks expect China to fail. It's just a matter of time, and this was the thing that was going to bring China down. And if we had been able to stop the clock in February, you know, that would perhaps have proved to be a theory with some legs, because this was a failure of the Chinese regime. It was a failure of the reporting chain they put in place after SARS in 2003. And the things they had to do, the, the lockdown that they had to implement in China was the severest economic and social shock that China has suffered really since the beginning of the reform period in the 1980s. But in a sense, what that narrative doesn't reckon with is, A, that the regime was able to respond in a dramatic way, in the way that the late Soviet regime in the 1980s absolutely wasn't. And it really doesn't reckon with our own incompetence. It doesn't reckon with the total failure of first Europe and then the United States to get a grip on this disease, which was coming towards us predictably through channels which we fully understand and can easily map, namely global air travel, with weeks of warning, I mean, you know, the only excuse you can really make for Beijing is that this, you know, they were the first to encounter this disease and didn't have any prior warning. We did. And for most of February, we basically slept. Yeah. Well, and arguably even December and January, I, I recall that there were reports um, yeah. that, that, uh, that our, our government, that the Trump administration was getting reports as early as November that something, you know, from, from satellite imagery and basically spies, that something's going on in Wuhan and it looks like it involves an infectious disease. Absolutely. But, I mean, that is, as it were, the, the sort of more speculative end of the story. From the right. 20th of January, 20, there's just no excuse. It's on yeah. Chinese television. I mean, yeah. the Chinese general secretary of the party and the president is admitting, hands up, you know, we have a huge problem here. And we are now going to do radical things. And, and what really strikes me, and it's not, you know, it's a, I, I would say I was myself party, party trip. Like, it's really a wake-up call to us all in the West to, to understand you know, what it means when we say glibly, you know, we're all tied together in a global world, we live in a global village, everything is so interconnected. 
But then when it gets serious, when it gets real, all of a sudden we find all sorts of excuses and reasons to actually not take serious the fact that we're interconnected. And for me, Chernobyl stands for that, right? It exoticizes it. It makes it feel like something that's ancient history, first of all, and in some provincial, you know, Ukrainian town behind the Iron Curtain. And, and that is not our reality. Wuhan is a city of 10 million people, affluent enough so that half of them for the great New Year's holiday traveled outside the city and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of them went on long distance trips. So when something like that happens there, when Beijing has to cut Wuhan off, all of the lights need to go off around the rest of the world. We need to react immediately. Yeah, and, and hopefully we will in the next time. You also write in, uh, we're talking with Dr. Adam Tooze, uh, author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, how essentially what this pandemic has demonstrated to us is that the world's financial stability, and, 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 and you argue, and I would, I would emphasize this, even political stability, uh, is also dependent on and interdependent with or interpenetrated by the natural environment. We're, we're certainly seeing this in a big way with, with global warming, but this pandemic is another, another example of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the most sort of extraordinary example today, it might be the situation in California in the summer, right, where they couldn't fight the raging historic forest fires because the teams of prison inmates they normally rely on to do the most dangerous firefighting were quarantined as a result of an out of control COVID epidemic within the correctional system. You know, and at that point you really begin to realize how, you know, structures of, of social inequality, racial inequality and environmental crisis come together in just a uh, a, a conflagration, really, a, a whirlwind that we are not ready for uh, and are not doing the concerted work and making the investments that will be necessary to prepare us better. Well, and, and speaking of that, I, I know here in the United States, many of our hospitals uh, have become commercial enterprises. I've, I've talked many times in this program and, and written about how back in the 70s, um, I owned an herbal tea company in the early, early 1970s. We had 18 people working for us, a little factory, you know, and we were bagging up herbs and selling them around the world or around the country. And um, healthcare, we provided healthcare to all our employees. It was cheap. And the reason it was cheap was because in, at that time, the law was, in Michigan anyway, and it was the case in most other states in the United States, that all the hospitals had to be nonprofit organizations and all the health insurance companies had to be nonprofit organizations. And, you know, the Reagan revolution blew that all up and, and hospitals have become now major profit centers. And that has not served us well in this pandemic. No, it really hasn't. I mean, it extends all the way up the, the food chain. It's a, it's an amusing story, perhaps. I, I, this book is being published in Germany this week as well, and it was translated. And the point I make, one of the points I make about the inadequate funding of the World Health Organization is that the World Health Organization's budget at $2.5 billion a year is smaller than that of any major American uh, urban hospital complex. And my German editor looked at this and said, you know, Professor Tooze, there must be an error here. You must be wrong. And I thought, oh, my God, have I got this wrong? And I, I looked, and in fact, it's just the truth that the big commercially operated hospital systems in the top 20 american cities have larger budgets than the who wow. so they have become exactly as you say huge profit-driven enterprises which issue debt some of which is junk rated right so these are actually leveraged enterprises and it was a question during this crisis of whether they could survive right because 
the ultimate perversity was that to prioritize the treatment of COVID, we had to shut down all elective work. And it's in the elective work that they make the money. So the, the largest single, you know, the largest single sectoral impact in terms of recession that America experienced was, I think I'm right in remembering this, the healthcare sector itself. So at the moment that we were, you know, really desperately struggling to prepare and to maintain the functionality of the healthcare system, it was suffering an economic and financial disaster. And, and we actually, in the CARES Act, substantial amounts of money were committed to bailing out, essentially supporting the healthcare system. So it isn't even free to, as it were, dispose of its formidable resources. And of course, you know, the best of American hospital care and medical care is, is as good as any in the world. We weren't even free to deploy it towards the public purposes because these are commercial entities and they were at risk of failure. Yeah. And, and, and is your prescription for that, that we go back to requiring that hospitals be not-for-profits and that we break up some of these hospital monopolies? I mean, is this just, a, you know, a symptom of neoliberalism that has, uh, that needs to be repaired? Or is there, is this just a, a crisis that we have to acknowledge and say, this is the way it is? Sorry. Well, I mean, this is a, this is a question for an American healthcare reform expert, but you can tell from my accent, I'm and born English. And, you know, our national healthcare system is, to my mind, by far and away, the most obvious and, and efficient way for rich societies to organize healthcare. It's also the cheapest way to organize it because it eliminates the incentives to bargain in the wrong way. And to me, the ideal of healthcare is the one that I experienced when our daughter was born, you know, almost more than 20 years ago now. And my, my, my then wife walked in pregnant. Um, we came out with our da darling little daughter and, and no bill changed hands, no signatures went on anything. It was just simply a badge of your citizenship that if you're a family expecting a child, you go to the hospital and you come out with your child and that's the end of the story. Right? No, yeah. no, no other transaction is involved at that, that moment because obviously it is the mother and the baby that have to be the priority. And that is the ideal, surely. So anything that heads in that direction has my vote. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> mine too. Uh, we will be right back in just a, just, a, just a moment here with Professor Adam Tooze. He's the author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Brand new book just out. It's absolutely fascinating. And uh, I want to get into neoliberalism and the Anthropocene. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Conversations with Great Minds. We're doing a deep dive into Adam Tooze's new book, Shutdown. And welcome back. Professor Tooze, I know that we, we uh, touched briefly on the 2008 financial crisis and, uh, and, and some of the, you know, the, in the very beginning when I was asking you about the disruptions that we saw and, and the role of capitalism and all that. But the lessons of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, you know, in some ways helped us deal with 2020, apparently, particularly at the level of the Fed, but in some ways, absolutely did not. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Well, this was a completely different type of crisis. We have made some improvements, like the banks didn't fail this time. I mean, imagine if the banks had been as badly capitalized as they had been in 2008. It would have been an apocalyptic scene. We haven't, on the other hand, fundamentally reformed finance either. So what we do is we crisis fight. Um, 
we learned lessons about the scale of fiscal policy. I don't think there's any doubt that the folks around the Biden administration, many of the economic policy team actually come out of the Sanders campaign, um, know that, as it were, one of the mistakes made in 2009 was that the Obama team didn't go big enough. So now they've gone bigger this time with regard to fiscal policy. Um, But I do think the jury is out as to whether or not we've really broken with the past in a fundamental way. And this, this brings us to this issue of neoliberalism. Uh, certainly, if you think of neoliberalism as a sort of doctrine, a, a set body of ideas, it's broken. Like, it's broken beyond repair. No one self-respecting intellectually, I think, thinks it can be rescued. But at the level of economic policy making, as it were, what we do and the tools we use and the way in which those tools, like said action, are entrenched within and this is the crucial follow-on point, a social structure shaped by neoliberalism since the 1970s. Your argument, for instance, about the medical system, of course, associated with that is a medical profession paid as it's never been paid before. In the same way in the Fed and in the monetary system, we're talking about a giant overgrown financial system to which the Fed is connected. At that level, the ideas may be broken and, and, and we may be in a, in a new world in that respect. But when it comes to the practice and the social interest associated with it, there's a really high measure of continuity. How so? Well, because the way the Fed acts repeatedly entrenches and reinforces existing biases, existing inequalities. Because when you pump money into the financial markets, it's the financial markets that get it first. And only 10% of Americans have any kind of stake worth really talking about in equities in financial markets. It's one of the biases of the financial news that they constantly tell us all about what's happening to the S&P 500. But it's only a minority of people who have any real investment in it at all, despite all of the hype about you know Reddit and, and Robin Hood and those kind of investment platforms. And it's really the top 1% that have very substantial shares, and their wealth is the flywheel that the Fed uses. Behind Fed monetary policy is basically a trickle-down version of how economic policy works. So every time you resort to that tool to stabilize the economy, you entrench that social interest. Whereas when we get to something like unemployment, America doesn't really have a functional unemployment insurance system that covers the whole country. But we don't reform that. We don't fix that problem. We just simply pump money in, which is way better than nothing, don't get me wrong. And it saw people through the crisis in 2020 in a way we never have before. Poverty actually fell. We should believe those numbers. But it doesn't fix the underlying problem. Yeah, and it's a system that was put into place in the 1930s. It's it's, it's getting creaky. Uh, We're talking with Professor Adam Tooze, the author of Shutdown. We'll be right back. Stick around. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
And welcome back. We're talking with Professor Adam Tooze, his new book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Uh, we were talking just a moment ago about how uh, neoliberalism um, and the financialization of our economy uh, not only have whacked the middle class for the last 40 years, but ha and, and, and just wreaked havoc with our political system. I think you could, uh, many have argued that the 2016 election of Donald Trump was you know, a, a direct response to this 40-year uh, Reaganism experiment. But it also did not leave us in good shape for this pandemic. When we combine that with this being the first major crisis of this new era, and I forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, the Anthropocene, Right. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, the anthro human. This is now the, the first in the eras of the history of our planet. The first one that has been largely shaped not by, you know, comets hitting us or whatever, but by human activity re reshaping the world. How is this confluence of neoliberalism and the advent of this new cycle era in the history of our planet and this COVID? How do these things all tie together? It's a train wreck. I mean, it's an absolute train wreck. And the book, I have to say, doesn't offer any easy answers. Um, what we are looking at is a kind of rubble field of, of failed projects to a certain extent. One thing I think we should warn against is the over-optimistic idea that the end of neoliberalism as a coherent intellectual project means we can somehow wind the clock back to the era of the New Deal. I'm a keen advocate of the vision of the Green New Deal because it, I think, offers us a way forward. But we have to be clear about what the political obstacles are. And I think, you know, the last couple of years of congressional politics have taught bitter lessons in that respect. Its diagnosis that we face a triple crisis, environmental, economic and social, is spot on. But can we, you know, gain purchase for that? We have to add another component here when we're talking about the environment, and it's China, and it obeys its own logic. It's not reducible, I think, to the Western model of neoliberalism. That's where this virus came from, either from a lab that went badly wrong, and there are loads of labs in China and loads of labs here, and so we should expect that kind of snafu, or from the relentless growth of Chinese society into what's left of the wilderness there. Either way, it is China's growth that produced this risk factor for the world. China managed to cope with it better than us, but going forward, China's phenomenal economic growth after the last, over the last two decades has totally transformed the climate problem, for instance. So in a sense, we are in a world in which, yes, we have our national and European and American stories of this, the crisis of neoliberalism. We have this mounting environmental crisis at the global level. But if, when, it, when it comes to CO2 emissions, China is responsible for as much as Europe, the United States and the rest of the rich countries of the world put together. So the truly daunting prospect is that we really don't have our fate in our own hands anymore. I mean, the, we can do our best to, to make ourselves more resilient, more flexible, more nimble in the way we respond, more creative. That is, as it were, what our politics should be directed towards. But we should not kid ourselves. And this is one of the things I worry about a little bit with the Green New Deal. But, you know, the New Deal ends with World War II and victory over fascism and D-Day. And then, as it were, the greatest generation that moves on from there. That's a horizon which is no longer really ours at this point. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't push for progress and reform and everything that we possibly can at home, but we should be clear about what scale that operates at. And where these risks are coming from, that's a bigger, wider global thing that we are really 
only a part of a big part and we have huge responsibility and frankly we should be doing our best to contribute to whatever solutions we can come up with that we shouldn't kid ourselves into believing that we really control our own destiny here yeah it is a, a, a an interrelated world as it were you you write in the book uh, shutdown about a she session <laughs> how the the, dis, the gender disproportionate impact of this virus to what extent is that a consequence of culture versus the way our economy is established? And I realize that, you know, one feeds the other. And what might we do about that? Inequality is all over this crisis, right? Inequality along rounds of race and along lines of gender. And women were in the front line of this crisis in every respect. It's their jobs that are hit hardest. It's they, obviously, who do a huge amount of the care labor in the hospital system. And it is women also that balance in most households the heaviest burdens of both domestic and paid work. And this was the first recession in which women's unemployment surged above that of men. And this reflects shifting patterns in the labor market. We are now an economy in which more women are employed than men. And so as if by a kind of perverse fate, the first major recession to come along hits this society and it produces a majority of unemployed uh, being women, unprecedented, especially in the minority communities. To, to have the peak levels of Latino unemployment that we did was, was really without any kind of a precedent. And so that has to be, this is why I think the CARES agenda of the Biden administration is so, is so fundamental, because they are focusing on the dimensions of inequality and economic prosperity that impact women and impact families for the first time. Absolutely remarkable. A brilliant book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Professor Adam Tooze is the author, professor of history at Columbia University. We've spoken before about crash, how a decade of financial crises changed the world. Dr. Tooze, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. My pleasure. Our conversations with great minds with Professor Adam Tooze. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. 
Hassan Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it.
John Arman here with you. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Oh, I've got something light for you today. We're going to talk trivia. <laughs> All right. I like that C-SPAN this morning, part of their program, uh, the Washington Journal, uh, had people uh, express which amendment was most important to them. And for me, Tom, it's the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, which, as you know, still makes slavery legal in the United States. And most of the people in prison are disproportionately the very same people, my ancestors, who were slaves in the first place. Yep. So I, w I wanted to, to kind of put that out there and also tell you this. You're, you're familiar with the triskaidekaphobia, fear of the number 13. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to a hotel, it goes from the 12th floor to the 14th floor, or it's the garden or whatever, never 13. Flights don't end in number 13, whatever. This is very widespread. Do you know, on the flag, there are six uh, white stripes and there are seven red stripes. The, uh, and these are also known as pales. Those represent the 13 colonies. Isn't it interesting that that juxtaposed to the 13th Amendment? I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but it is very interesting, don't you think? It is, it is. Um, my understanding, you know, there's various uh, kind of origin stories about the fear of the number 13. But the one that I give the most credence to, and, and again, nobody, has, nobody can say this is definitely it, but in the book of Esther, as I recall, the Egyptians, I'm going to mangle this story, but basically, they, this is the story of Haman, and you know, Haman was this bad guy who was going to kill all the Jews, and Esther was the queen who was uh, secretly Jewish and the wife of the king. And, and it wasn't Egypt, it was some other country, but whatever. And she outed Haman to the king, saying, he's trying to kill me because I'm one of the Jews. And, and Haman had built this gallows. He'd talked the king into building a gallows, and he was going to have this mass hanging. And once she told the king that Haman was trying to kill her, the king had Haman hanged. And the story is that that was on a Friday the 13th. And so the Jewish folks were saved on a Friday the 13th, and therefore the Catholics decided it was a terrible day. So what do you think? Well, I think that 13 is a bad motor scooter. <laughs> I actually, you know, I've started, I, I, of the seven companies that I've started over the years, Louise and I started three of them on Friday the 13th. Um, once by once by coincidence and twice by intention. I am I am not uh, I don't have say that word again. Trissa, what is it? Phobia. It's triskaidekaphobia. Triskaidekaphobia. Uh, yeah, and it's very widespread. No, I you know I'm not superstitious. I think it's ridiculous. But when you juxtapose it again with the 13 colonies, the 13th Amendment, which legalizes slavery, it's just all very interesting. Well, if, if the I, founders I were keep it light, Tom. Yeah, the but but the but the, but the, the founders and the framers of the Constitution. They were fans of the number 13, actually, and, and I think it's because, you know, they Obviously. were they, they were kind of pushing back on this whole the whole idea that apparently had infected Catholicism for hundreds of years, that 13 was scary. Kenyatta, great to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Okay, thank you so much to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Etnodica, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde, all the folks who help make this program work every day in all its various incarnations and on various places. And special thanks also to every radio and television station and network that carries this program. 
and please support their sponsors or if they're in pledge drive support them we'll see you on monday have a great weekend get out there get active tag you're it and be careful and be nice to people we'll see you on monday you've been listening to tom hartman for audio and video archives visit tomhartman.com 